Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 290 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I sat down and had a great conversation with Rich Rudro, a photographer who has chosen to specialize on one single location, the Grand Canyon. Listeners may recognize Rich's name from an absolutely stunning National Geographic documentary called Into the Canyon about their two-month-long journey hiking the entirety of the Grand Canyon from one end to the other. Rich has dedicated his life to exploring the slot canyons of the Grand Canyon, and he's a huge advocate for the preservation of the canyon. Before we get rolling, I wanted to continue to encourage listeners to join me over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a fantastic place for seeing photographs, receiving and sending critique, learning from your peers, and so much more. There's just so many amazing things going on over at NPN, including some really fun critique events, ask me anything events, and a ton more. I have found myself spending way more time on NPN than Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It is the best place on the internet to engage with other nature photographers about photography, and it only costs $49 per year. Just head over to npn.link forward slash fstop to join. Use the code fstop10 for a 10% discount as well. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Rich Rudro. All right, Rich Rudro, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks to Suzanne Mathia for uh, making the connection between us. I like Suzanne. She's great. Oh, she's awesome. She's one of my favorites. Yeah. Have you hung out with her much? Oh, only a little bit. Uh, I've run into her a few times uh, on the rim of the Grand Canyon shooting stuff, and we talk. And uh, she had an exhibit one time uh, of some you know, some of her photographs, and I went to take a look at that. And really love her work. She's really talented. Her compositions are just about as good as they get. I mean, she's just really a terrific yeah. photographer. So, Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, cool. Well, Rich, for, for people that aren't familiar with you, um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I, uh, I live in the Phoenix area, so uh, the Grand Canyon is my backyard. And, and uh, so I spend, you know, 60, 70, 80 days a year below the rim of the canyon, mainly just seeing these amazing places that, uh, that I enjoy. Um, you know, people know me in the, in the Grand Canyon community as, uh, you know, a hiker and an explorer. Um, I'm less known as a photographer because I, you know, I picked up photography pretty recently. I, I, re- I was fortunate to be able to retire when I turned 50. I'm 57 now. And, and one of the bucket list things I had that I really wanted to do after I retired was to traverse the length of the canyon in one fell swoop and stay below the rim for a couple of months and, and you know, see cool places that some I had been to before, some I hadn't, but kind of get this really immersed experience. And as part of that uh, exercise, I asked a friend of mine, he's a professional photographer, uh, my buddy Dan Ransom, I, I called Dan and said, hey, I want to take a, I want to take a better camera on on this <laughs> trip. And up until that point, uh, you know, I always had a cam camera on trips in the canyon, and I've, you know, spent more than half my life playing in the canyon. So um, I 
you know, but the cameras I would take uh, prior to that were, you know, the typical point and shoot. They tended to have to be waterproof because sometimes we were going through slot canyons on ropes and swimming through, uh, <laughs> you know, pools and, you know, cameras don't survive very well. So uh, uh, Dan's recommendation in 2015 was that I pick up a Sony a6000 <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and I, you know, it, it, it it had to strike this really delicate balance. It had to be very lightweight. Um, right. So I'm going to be carrying it for a couple of months. Um, but, you know, I wanted to take better pictures than a, the point-and-shoot I was accustomed to. So on Dan's recommendation, I uh, took that camera on a trip a couple of months below the rim, and I was just stunned at some of the photographs I was able to get. Some just turned out remarkably good, despite the fact I had no idea what I was really doing. And, uh, and of course that energizes you and, and, uh, I, you know, quickly just wanted to learn more and more about, you know, photography and how to take great pictures. And, uh, I've always really been into time lapses and time lapse photography and night photography. And I shoot a lot of Milky Way time lapses and, you know, you quickly learn that you just need to go to full frame equipment and fast lenses (laughs) and, all those things that are antithetical to being super lightweight on these rough routes in right. the Grand Canyon. And you're like, how so, am I going to break this news to my wife? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm 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 well known for falling down the rabbit hole of expensive hobbies, and this was certainly one of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's interesting, so. Rich, because it sounds like we had a fairly similar introduction to photography because. I was a mountain climber first, and I wanted to just take pictures of my uh, my hikes and my journeys and share them, you know, with my friends and family. And I had a a blog and you know stuff like that. And I had basically like a most like a point and shoot kind of a little bit better than a point and shoot, but it was a fixed lens Sony camera. And I did the same thing. I'm like, oh, I kind of like this. I want to learn more about it. So I bought a Nikon D7000. And I mm. checked out like every book in the library I could find on photography and, right. you know, trial and error, lots of really bad photos and, you know, just try, <laughs> try to figure out how the stupid thing works. And, you know, like, I don't know, there's some fun in that. <laughs> there, There is. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite cliches is uh, spray and pray. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've learned a lot of, of uh, I've learned a lot about photography and a lot about composition and a lot about you know, what makes a photograph, you know, what, what makes this three-dimensional scene you're looking at uh, become a beautiful two-dimensional, you know, photograph. And, and uh, you know, a lot of that comes from just shooting a lot and editing a lot and learning what, you know, what what ends up being, what, what ends up looking good, what, what ends up not. You know, the brain right. is, a, uh, is a neural net you can train. Um, and, and, and I was super fortunate to, you know, for years I've had friends that are really good photographers. I, you know, of course, my friend Dan Ransom, I mentioned, who told me to get a Sony A6000, but I've spent uh, a fair amount of time below the rim with Pete McBride, a great friend who's who's a National Geographic photographer and a Sony ambassador. And Yeah, and they did that and, uh, um, you know, so documentary always... film, right? That documentary film about yeah. doing the Grand Canyon and it, like... In, yeah. Into the Canyon. Yeah, I yeah. was in that film and uh, spent okay, lots of yeah. time with, with Pete and 
Kevin Fedarko and, and uh, you know, every time Pete was doing something, I was looking over his shoulder. So what are you doing? What? <laughs> Why, why did you set your camera up that way, you know? And, and so Pete and I would, of course, I would constantly give him a hard time about, you know, one of these days, Pete, I'll show you a few tricks. And so uh, anyway, uh, you know, they're just terrific friends. But, you know, I, how fortunate is it to be able to, you know, learn, uh, you know, get this crash course masterclass from people that are just enormously talented at this. And, and uh, so... Uh, you know, I'm just super lucky. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's let's talk about your love affair for the Grand Canyon. You know, I I mean, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I don't know, maybe three or four times. It's amazing. There's, I mean, obviously, it's yeah, it's a huge hole in the ground, but so much more than that. You know, and I think probably 95% of the people who visit the Grand Canyon don't fully experience what the park is really about. I think. Um, so I'm curious why you've chosen to exclusively exclusively uh, focus on the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I well, I, I think it just kind of happened that way. Um, you know, my wife bought me a river trip in the Grand Canyon as a gift in 1989. And <laughs> so I, you know, my first experience was on this commercial river trip. And I was just blown away by uh, the the beauty of the place, the vastness of the place. And yet... In all of this vastness, we would go into uh, a side drainage that you know turns into a just stunning microenvironment, and mm-hmm. and so you, you know you go from this just massive expanse into this delicate you know scene with an entirely different scale, and uh, you know every time I would ask the river guides, you know what's up there, you know how do you get up there, you know oh you can't get up there, you know that, <laughs> yeah, that you know. Anyway, to make accepted. a yeah, yeah. Well, to make a long story short, I, I, uh, I came back from that trip just kind of really energized about these, uh, about the dichotomy of the place, the massive scale, and yet the stunning beauty in these narrow places. And started, you know, hiking all the trails with my brother-in-law in the early '90s, and then started deciding that, well, you know, if we only had a short rope, we could go see this, you know, and. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I would read, uh, you know, some of the, the literature by uh, Harvey Butcher or George Steck, maybe two of the icons of, of early hiking and early routes in the canyon. And, and uh, well, let's go see that and that. And, that, you know, and pretty quick it was like, well, we need a longer rope to go do that. And, <laughs> and then at some point in the, in the late 90s, my wife was, you know, of, of the opinion that we had no idea what we were doing. So she, she bought... Uh, uh, my brother-in-law and I, her, her brother and I, uh, uh, climbing lessons yeah. under the auspices of us, you know, really, really learning how to deal with ropes and stuff rather than, you know, shooting from the hip. And, 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 and of course, all that did was encourage us to bring longer ropes and do, <laughs> do harder routes. And, and uh, that kind of morphed into, uh, you know, I had been playing in some slot canyons in the Grand Canyon and also playing in some slot canyons that were in Arizona that came off the Muggy on Rim or uh, the mesas above, you know, between Sedona and Flagstaff and uh, the West Fork of Oak Creek and, and, and decided that, you know, there was just there were these stunning, amazing places in the Grand Canyon that, uh, that just, you know, hadn't been explored before. My friend Todd Martin and I in the, you know, maybe 2006 or seven kind of 
uh, reached a pact where we said, well, you know, this is just a greenfield. We've got to go explore as many of these places as we can. And, and so, you know, Todd and I set about just descending slot canyon after slot canyon after slot canyon in the Grand Canyon. And, you know, the Grand Canyon slot, you know, the Grand Canyon is on the Colorado Plateau. Um, most of the slot canyons on the Colorado Plateau that people uh, recognize are, are in sandstone, uh, predominantly right. Navajo sandstone. And, and, and so uh, when you see a slot canyon in the Grand Canyon, they're predominantly in the limestone layers, uh, in the right. red wall layer, the Temple Butte, and the Muad layers. And, and it's a stunning stack up of limestone that can be 1,000 or 12 or even 1,500 feet uh, you know, tall in total. And you know, the Grand Canyon had these enormous challenges. You had to uh, find ways to get off the, the limestone rim of the canyon um, on these remote routes. There are very few trails in the Grand Canyon, especially on the north rim side. Um, and so we were predominantly operating in a you know, completely off-trail environment. How do you get off the rim down through certain geologic layers to finally get to the limestone? And the limestone is often 2,500 or 3,000 feet below the rim. And then when you, uh, you know, when you're doing first ascents of slot canyons, there are a lot of precautions and issues and equipment that's required in order to, uh, you know, have a fighting chance of coming out the other end alive. Uh, you know, there are a lot of issues with, it's very easy to get trapped in the slot canyon. It's very easy to find potholes where the water levels are low enough that you can't get out the other side, what we call keeper potholes. It's easy to get hypothermia. It's easy to find that your ropes are too short. You know, we've all, all those things happen to us uh, over the years. Um, but, you know, once you finally rappel out of these slot canyons, you end up down at the river, and, and now what do you do? <laughs> right? So, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I've just, I've just figured out how to, you know, like technically move through four or 5,000 vertical feet of rock, um, maybe 10 or 12 geologic layers in time, you know, and now I'm at the Colorado River, you know, cliffed out by cliffs on both sides. And, and you know, how do I get out of here? Um, so, you know, it, it, it presented this series of challenges that was just really invigorating. Uh, you know, I, I'm an engineer by background. My friend Todd Morton, who in, in ended up writing a guidebook on, on uh, Grand Canyon slots uh, called Grand Canyoneering, uh, you know, he's an engineer by background. And so th this was kind of the ultimate problem-solving thing for, you know, a couple of engineering-minded folks. And, you know, of course, when we reached the river, we uh, immediately started experimenting with all kinds of different flotation ideas. Uh, <laughs> some really dumb and didn't work, and, you know, some that turned out to be brilliant and, and uh, right. present to what we do today. But, you know... It just evolved over a period of time, and we, and we had to develop these systems to, uh, you know, the technical systems to work in Canyon that were light enough to carry. Um, when we reached the river, we developed new pack raft systems and, and new paddle systems and a new PFD system. Um, and in the early days, we were complete outlaws. The, you know, the park never envisioned people doing what we were doing. And so, you know, we would blow up these little pool toys and be paddling down the Colorado River, hoping not to get caught. And, you know, we would go 
as far as necessary until there was a break in the cliff bands where we could climb out. Uh, but, you know, invariably we got caught and, and you know, that started a whole new uh, effort to convince the park that this was not, you know, this was not an illegal activity. This was an activity that the park should uh, permit and allow. And, and, you know, after I paid my first ticket and used that as a, an avenue to talk to the chief ranger about what we were really doing and what we were finding and, you know, the park very slowly but surely came around to this idea. And now uh, canyoneering in the Grand Canyon is, is, is commonplace today. People do it all the time. They use Todd's book, Grand Canyoneering, uh, for beta. Um, you know, Todd and I get emails from people all the time asking for information about places. You know, uh, Todd's book ended up winning the National Outdoor Award, uh, National Outdoor Book Award. It's 500 pages just over 500 pages and it's just an amazing kind of treatise on beautiful canyons you can go see in the grand canyon and how to get in and how to get out and how to have these amazing adventures um, but you know uh when he published the book uh todd, todd was you know kind of burned out on the grand canyon but i was just you know uh seemingly ever more interested in finding more so uh, you know, at this point, I think I've I'm I'm approaching 190 canyon descents in the Grand Canyon alone. Many of them I've done, you know, many times. You know, the really good ones you want to go back and do again because right. uh, it's kind of like climbing. You know, that first experience is, uh, you know, hair raising. It's not always it doesn't always go according to plan. You know, <laughs> stuff comes up. Uh, there's some high degree of stress involved and. You realize when you're done that it was an amazing adventure, but, you know, there's some beautiful spots in that canyon you actually didn't appreciate. You want to go back again and see it. And that's when I want to, you know, really take my, these days, I want to take my full frame camera and spend some time in the place and try to take some really good pictures. So, Yeah, and how do you, how have you dealt with some of the access issues uh, relating to um, the Navajo and I think maybe even the Hopi? Yeah, well, there are, there are 14 tribes that are that have some cultural affiliation of the Grand Canyon, but only three of right. those tribes actually have borders with the Grand Canyon. Of course, the Navajos are one of those tribes uh, in the upper part of the Marble Canyon on the east called, uh, well, called Marble Canyon, uh, the upper part of the canyon. Uh, yeah, uh, and you know, Tadahatsu is over there, right? Yeah, Tadahatsu is a stunning canyon uh really a beautiful yeah, if you, canyon if you can go <laughs> like no yeah. one's really allowed to go anymore well yeah so uh the navajos actually have a pretty good hiking program and and they've permitted these activities for a long time um the issue with tatahatso canyon i mean for the record there is a way to do that canyon that doesn't involve navajo lands and we've done it that way uh many times <laughs> what's published is the route that involves navajo lands um, but ironically, what happened with Tadahatso and Navajo access, or, or today the lack of access, uh, had a large degree to do with Instagram. And yeah, what happened sure. was uh, uh, some people discovered that this area needed access. Actually, the area needed to exit for uh, Tadahatso Canyon is called uh, Point Hansborough. And and from the rim, it's enormously scenic, and it has this kind of look of horseshoe bend, but even better, in my view. And so, you know, people kind of 
somebody put some Instagram photos up and, you know, somebody else came along and then people were getting stuck in vehicles. I mean, it's a complete four wheel drive road to get out to the worst part of it, at least, (laughs) you know, and then they're at, they're knocking on Navajo Hogan's asking the, you know, sheep herders there for help and they're not equipped to, you know, help these folks. And then they're starting, you know, small fires thinking that that's legal. It's not legal in Navajo land. It's not legal in the park. And, you know, uh, the Navajos have their own internal politics like, you know, like anybody else. And one of the locals out there happened to start uh, uh, a touring business, uh, a guy by the name of Frank Martin, that that realized that, well, if, if that many people want to come out to see Point Hansbro, I'll just set up shop and page and you know, put a sign out front and I'll just take the tourists in a suburban out there. And, and that's what he started doing. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, except that then what happened was he went to the local chapter uh, over that area, the Bodaway Gap chapter and convinced them that, that the permit process through the federal government, the tribal government, um, isn't fair to the locals and they should just give him the exclusive contract to take people (laughs) to that spot. And that's pretty much what happened. And so now he polices that pretty uh, voraciously. And, uh, you know, it's kind of created this one spot where he's got the the exclusive right. And by the way, the the tribal government doesn't agree with this necessarily. But, you know, this is a dispute that we can't solve. Right. And and so, you know, the end result is is, uh, this uh, Navajo individual opened a, tour business and uh, managed to get exclusive access and he's quite happy to you know block people that are trying to access Tatahatso Canyon through the way that we used to. Right. Um, I also happen to sit on the board of the Coalition of American Canyoneers and so uh, I'm well versed in this problem and we're we'd like to to maybe spend some time with with Frank Martin to talk about some ideas where you know canyoneers can get access if he you know the, the, the canyoneers aren't the folks that are, you know, getting vehicles stuck and starting right. fires out there and stuff. <laughs> they, they, they understand, they generally understand the, the, the difficulty and the task at hand and they quickly disappear from the rim lands and they're gone. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, a, another case of Instagram and location sharing and geotagging that's yeah. just gone completely sideways that people yep. don't necessarily know about, but it's just another location that, now you can't go too freely because of that behavior. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's too bad, too, because I remember the first time that I went to Nankaweep, um, you feel really immersed in the culture and the history there and the yeah. you know the ancient peoples, that, the Puebloans that live there, and it's just such a special experience. And, and I think, you know, for a lot of nature lovers and, you know, landscape and nature photographers, a lot of us are so excited about those types of experiences but then it's like the people that just want to get the selfie or whatever like just ruin right. it for the rest of us <laughs> yeah that's 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 exactly right yeah yeah I, I mean you know you just don't talk about these places you don't talk about where these places are anymore no uh, i don't you know, i mean yeah. we are now but i mean yeah well i mean you know good luck getting to tatahatsu ta- without getting yeah, like, yeah tatahatsu's published uh you know, right. it's a it's a known slot canyon. It's stunningly beautiful, and it's fairly recent that access has been closed. Yeah. Um, there is 
you know, for your audience, it's, uh, you know, there are cannoneers dying to go to Tadahatsu, though there actually are legal ways uh, to get there uh, using uh, parklands. Uh, I've done it, you know, many times myself. And, and yeah. you don't have to access it the way that was, you know, published. So sure. there are there are ways to see Tadahatsu still today, but it's a little more involved. And it's a little harder and it takes right. a little more work. Yeah. Well, um I want to go back to talking a little bit about more of the, the scale of the Grand Canyon because I don't think some people who haven't spent a lot of time there can really fully appreciate just the scale and immensity, yeah. both in time and size of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And I'm and I'm curious for you, like, how have you been able to capture that scale through your f- photographs? Yeah, you, you know, it, it it's really interesting. I mean, the North Rim and South Rim viewpoints that that you know, most uh, Americans visit and and see is is, is kind of, you know, in, in the eastern, uh, you know, two-thirds or maybe eastern 40% of, of, of the Grand Canyon. And, right. and it's a relatively small area. It's, it's an area that, you know, we call the corridor area uh, for, you know, some of the trails that exist below the rim. Right. And, Angel and that, Point or... Angel Landing and the Rim to Rim Trail and all that. Yeah, yeah, and and that area is about a hundred thousand acres or so. That corridor area, but you know the Grand Canyon National Park is one point two million acres, <laughs> and huge. and the Colorado River runs two hundred and seventy seven miles through Grand Canyon National Park, and right. so you know what you're seeing from the rim is just God smacking scale. But it's nothing, right? <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> it's so it it's so small. And 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 photography. I mean, there are lots of terrific photographers that shoot from the rim and take amazing photos and get new compositions. I see them all the time. Suzanne is one. Adam Shalau is another. Some of the of old classic guys like Gary Ladd that have been, uh, you know, shooting at the canyon for decades and decades. I mean. These these people are really accomplished professionals, and and you can shoot from the rim and get amazing shots. Oftentimes, you know, I find, you know, the kind of foreground object that you put in a Grand Canyon landscape shot uh, from the rim is, you know, it, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, a beautiful flower or an agave plant. It's you know a pillar that's 250 feet tall. And <laughs> right. I mean, you know, uh, you, I mean, if you're talking about, and, and, and then the scale just gets gigantic beyond that, right? And the mid-ground right. and the background. So, you, you know, shooting at the canyon, shooting from the rim uh, is, uh, you know, it's kind of different, can be different in the way that, you know, you compose shots because of that giant scale. But for me, I, I uh, always was most fascinated by the small scale beauty hidden in the fabric of the place. So I always loved these, you know, going into these side drainages and and taking pictures in the side drainages or or using, you know, if you're on the rim, sometimes the side drainages are these amazing leading lines that, you know, uh, that create stunning photographs. And so, you know, I never personally kind of got lost in the scale of the views from the rim. I mean, I, I always understood this was just so much bigger than what I could see. 
um, I was, you know, always more drawn to uh, those interesting things you could find below the rim where the scale starts to, you know, come together and it starts to get smaller and the environment starts to be more intimate. And, and often in slot canyons, for example, I, I love pictures of people in slot canyons because it it's super helpful to, to take the, 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 the viewer, uh, to immediately have the viewer grasp the scale of the place through the, you know, tiny ant of a human being that's, right. you know, that's there. But you, you have to have that. You have to have a way to connect with, with the viewer on an image. And yeah, what's that, what's that spot that's at that huge overhang? Is it Redwall? Redwall Cavern. Yeah, sure. like that's a good spot for that because you get it, like, because I remember playing Frisbee under that thing. And, yeah. And you're just like, you look up and it's um, you just feel so you, minuscule. <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you could be a frisbee champion, huck the frisbee as hard as you can, and you're not going to escape that cavern. It's that big. Yeah. yeah, it's massive. I don't know about you, but I think probably the best way to experience the Grand and really fully appreciate it for what it is is by rafting it. Yeah, I've I'm uh, doing my fifteenth trip. I'm rowing my boat through the canyon in late. January for a month. Nice. And that'll be my that'll be my fifteenth river trip through the canyon. Yeah, and I I think you're right. You you do acquire you, you know when you stand on the rim you get this just god's eye view of massive scale that that you know can can really almost kind of confuse and and you know turn dizzy the casual viewer that you know <laughs> just can't process what they're seeing. Um, you get on a raft and you go through the canyon and you have the exact opposite experience. Everything has right. come together at the river. And now all of a sudden you're looking up at, you know, 5,000 vertical and, and the expanse gets bigger the more you look up. And so it, it definitely gives you the exact kind of opposite experience. Um, and, and you process things entirely differently. And it's a great, great way to, to take photographs. Right. And, and you get to experience all those microclimates like you were talking about, like little slot canyons full of yeah, ferns yeah, you, and moss and little, you know, tributaries and there's yeah. cactus everywhere and it's awesome. We, <laughs> we started, you know, we pioneered river trips uh, many years ago where um, the the rafts were just, you know, think, think, think of the raft as just a vehicle to go car camping and you can bring your biggest tripod and your full frame gear and not worry about what you're carrying. And, and by the way, you can also, you know, bring all the, you know, beer you can drink and good food and, and, <laughs> yes, you, can. <laughs> you know, you, you float down the river and you get to a great place and, and, you know, you can grab all your roadside camera gear and take pictures. Um, what we started doing years ago though, is, is we would just use the rafts uh, as a mechanism of transport um, especially on these winter trips, which we prefer, and where you could spend 30 days below the rim. And, and we would raft to a particular destination that we were interested in, and we'd park the rafts and grab our backpacks and lightweight gear, and I'd grab my lighter weight system for, you know, taking photos, and we would, you know, climb up two or 3,000 feet to different layers and backpack the destinations and, you know, rappel back, to the river through slot canyons and then deploy our pack rafts and float back to the boats. And we would do lots of those, you know, 
two night, uh, three day overnight kind of trips, or maybe one night, two day uh, overnight trips away from the boats. And uh, it's a you know it's a terrific way to 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 see a lot of Grand Canyon and get immersed in the place for for a month or so. Yeah, that makes that's that sounds amazing. <laughs> so. What has been your approach to keeping your gear light for those lengthy adventures you've been talking about? Yeah, well, you know, this, these systems evolved over a long period of time. I mean, one of our first problems was to figure out how uh, uh, to, to create lightweight pack rafting systems so we could escape uh, from the river once we arrived. And the very first idea that I had, we were doing a route, and uh, all we needed to do was cross the river. And ironically, we were going out the route you referenced earlier called Eminence Break, which is now kind of off limits for the, the Navajos with Tadahatso. And and uh, because we were just crossing the river, I got this, you know, kind of, you know, in hindsight, dumb idea that we just needed <laughs> one. We just needed one little raft. And so we bought this, you know, $60 uh, Sevler trail boat at, you know, at a Kmart or something, and it had a little plastic paddle, and, you know, this is perfect. So we're just going to carry one raft, and I went to, like, Bass Pro Shops, and I bought a deep-sea fishing reel and a pole. And I cut the pole off so that, you know, all that there was was about a foot of the pole, because I didn't want the weight of the rest of the pole. And there was a 125-pound test Kevlar line, and I had about 700 feet of it on this thing. So the idea was... You know, a friend would paddle the pack raft across the river with the line attached to the back, and then I would reel it back, and then the next person would go, the next person would go, and and uh, <laughs> there were four of us on this trip, and 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 this, of course, uh, you know, the first friend of mine goes, and I'm feeling like the master of the universe. This is brilliant. It worked perfect, and I reel the pack raft back, and the next person goes, and, and I'm just thinking this is just amazing, and the third person goes, and and, and kind of isn't really attuned to paddling and the skills and paddling and and maintaining be, a ferry angle. Yeah, <laughs> well, and 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 this person starts to get twisted up in the line, and oh, no. there's a little counter on the reel where I could tell how much line had played out. And I was calling to my other friends across the river, 300 feet, 350. And this person's drifting down the river. And then he breaks the paddle in half. And, you know, now he's really in trouble because he has no idea how to, you know, this cheap plastic paddle just snapped in half in his panic. And, you know, he's trying to figure out what to do. And 400 feet, 500 feet, you know. And uh, the other guys have gotten across with about 325 or 350 feet. So I, the line is played out at 600 feet. It's going way downstream. There is a rapid downstream too. And I'm thinking, well, this great idea just stranded me on the wrong side of, of the river. I'm the last guy and uh, I'm not, I don't have a way home. This is going to end very badly because as soon as this guy hit the end of the line, I was certain that it would just snap the line or damage the raft or something. But he's all tangled up in it. So finally, uh, one of the friends on the other side jumped in the river. Uh, we had wetsuits on, and uh, mainly because we had descended a cold slot canyon, but jumped in the river with his wetsuit on and swam out and kind of 
swam the boat to shore and disaster was averted. Um, so I finally, you know, reeled the boat back and paddled across and, 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 you know, we survived. But, you know, the immediate thought at that point was, you know, during that whole exercise, whatever raft came along, we would just clothesline somebody, you know, cut their head off with this 175 pound, you know, Kevlar line. And so (laughs) after that little experiment, we decided, no, that, that, that seemed brilliant, but it was really not not a very good idea. Yeah, that's yeah. that's. So, and what's interesting about the the water from the in the in the Colorado River there is like it stays a constant temperature year round because it's getting released from the bottom of the of I guess from Glen Canyon Dam, Glen Canyon, yeah. right? Lake so, Powell, right? Yeah, so it's like you know, very, what is it? Very cold. Fifty to forty-five degrees, fifty degrees, or something. It's really cold. Yeah, I, I think the average when the lake is relatively full is about forty-eight degrees. Uh, right. Yeah. It's a little warmer right now because Lake Powell is almost out of water. Um, <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There is there is that little problem. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, after that experience, we decided. Well, you know, we need everybody needs their own individual pack raft, and and uh, one of the friends that was on that trip was an engineer at Intel. And he spent about four years literally trying to design a really lightweight pack raft because weight was everything. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just so difficult to move around that terrain. And and so he finally, eventually, he came up with a with a 23-ounce pack raft and about a 12-ounce paddle. And then we had a personal flotation device. The, the first personal flotation devices we used, the, the part would not have approved of <laughs> because... They were those kind of classic orange horse collar, big old right. foam things that you see at the lake, you know. And right, it's like and, what they and, give you if the plane is crashing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 they were, you know, they were nine or ten ounces. But if you ever found yourself in a riffle or in a rapid on purpose or an accident, they would come up over your head and you know potentially strangle you and cause a lot of problems. So ultimately, we found a, a lightweight PFD that weighed about twelve ounces. So today. After a lot of refinement, thanks to thanks to friends, our our pack raft kits, the the pack raft, the paddle, and the PFD weigh about three pounds, the wow. entire thing. And it, the pack raft packs to the, about the size of an Nalgene water bottle. And it was a lot of innovations like that, refinements like that in systems that finally got the weight down, where you could carry a, a lightweight canyoning rack and you know the necessary descending and ascending gear um you know you could carry ropes we we eventually settled on a a 250 foot rope 100 foot rope and a a 200 foot pull cord as the absolute minimum rope lengths that you could use to go do your first descents and you know you know of course absolute minimum was right because i think i remember 10 or 12 times where, you know, the ropes are too short and now you're kind of really screwed. You're hanging on the edge of right, the abyss tired. and <laughs> figuring out, you know, how you're going to do a mid-wall anchor. And, uh, you know, uh, through a lot of trial and error over a number of years, we, we really refined these systems. And, you know, we usually found ourselves in the neighborhood of, of 40 to 50 pounds for a four-day uh, exploration trip with it you know, four days of food and pack rafts and ropes and, you know, cannoning rack and, you know, uh, sleep gear, you know, was the first thing to, to, to suffer. I mean, I, I remember doing one trip where I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to take my, you know, it's October. I'm not going to even take my inflatable pad that, you know, 12 ounces is too much. 
And, you know, I remember sleeping on the sand and freezing my butt off all night, you know, laying on a space blanket. And, okay, that's not a good idea. Um, But, (laughs) you know, in the end, you get really good at, you know, lightweight packs, lightweight sleep systems, uh, you you know, calculating your food very, very carefully. um, And then all the technical gear you have to bring. And, and, And we often ended up, you know, in that, you know, kind of 40 pound neighborhood, maybe 45. Right. Well, I, I, I wasn't 50 pounds too often. And of course these days it's, it's hard to love 50 pounds around that terrain. I, I, uh, I, I, I pr- prefer to find, you know, trusted, talented young friends that are very technically capable to carry the 300 foot rope. We also, we also finally decided that, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, we've done all the easy slots <laughs> and the hard ones are usually bigger. And so we have to carry bigger ropes. So, you know, you got to find younger friends that have the backs right. to, to, uh, to, to help carry some of this stuff. Right. It's been an evolution over a period of time. Right. Well, um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the, the human threat to the Grand Canyon and, and what are the threats and, and why should we care? Yeah, you know, one of the things about the Grand Canyon, and, and, and one of the reasons that I, I, I mean, I do take pictures in other places, but, you know, I only put Grand Canyon stuff on my website, and I, I sell a lot of prints. Uh, they're all Grand Canyon prints. And, and, and I think what what happens is, you know, Grand Canyon is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a World Heritage Site. Uh, there's not a human on the planet that hasn't heard of it. Um, you know, there are lots of humans on the planet have been there to see it. And, and so it's got this cachet. It's got this automatic branding. Um, there are few people that you'll talk to that, that, you know, wouldn't love to have this majestic Grand Canyon photograph on their wall. And, and, and so I, I, I put no effort into, you know, kind of promoting the idea that you need a Grand Canyon picture on your wall. People are already think that, you know, yeah, you know, I'm going to, if I'm going to go like do something really epic and big, you know, that everybody in the world knows, uh, you know, Grand Canyon photograph is, is, is a cool thing to do. Um, and, and so, you know, I, 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 I put my energy there, but mainly because I like to go there and, and I love to do these long kind of, you know, trips to see different things. And I love to take my, uh, full-frame camera along these days, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what weather you're going to get. You never know, you know, what the light is going to do. And it's amazing how the light can just play in that place. And sometimes I'll do a trip where I, I don't think I really got a print-worthy image and I don't really care. I mean, it was just a sure. terrific adventure, great trip, you know, saw amazing things. And other times I'll come back from a trip where, you know, there's some weather event and it's just you know, just stunning image after stunning image. And, and, you know, the place really just kind of delivered this light that, you know, you don't see very often. So it, it, it's really interesting in that way. And, and, and because I, you know, grew so attached to the place over a long period of time, I I don't really view photography as kind of being a, you know, a job or a burden or anything like that. Um, this, the, the, it's just a, a, an amazing place to go to, you know, to get pictures that people can connect with anywhere in the world. The problem with that is that, 
um, this cachet is recognized by other folks too, including developers, right? So there are tons of threats to the canyon that revolve around, you know, building uh, more hotels, consuming more groundwater, which is a real threat to the the water that's available in the inner canyon, which is pretty meager compared to other places. This is, you know, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you're not going into the Sierras or the winds or, you know, any, any place else. There's not water like that. Um, right. And, and so these developers are constantly looking for an angle to build the next, you know, Colossus hotel and, and to play it up. Um, you also or like have, build a, or like build a tram. I've, I've seen. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. There was yeah. A, a, a very substantial effort uh, to build a tram to take people off the rim of Navajo lands down to the confluence of the little Colorado and the Colorado river. And, and that threat, was massive by any scale you could imagine. They were projecting they would bring 10,000 people a day down to a place that, you know, might see, you know, 30 or 40 people a day in the form of, you know, people that are running the river. Um, and it's just a colossal escalation of, of visitation. And of course, you have to build infrastructure for 10,000 people a day. They were going to build a boardwalk with shops and, places to eat and things to do uh, right there in this, you know, stunning wilderness setting that was, you know, sacred to uh, some of the tribes. And ultimately that, that failed, but those kinds of things never die forever. They get resurrected from time to time. You never know if, uh, you know, the political conditions change uh, that might enable something like that. Uh, one of the other development threats that, you know, frankly, is the most serious threat facing the Grand Canyon today, in my opinion, is uh, the Wallapai tribe in the Western Canyon has 108 river miles that uh, abuts Grand Canyon National Park. So their uh, reservation goes up to the high water mark of the Colorado River uh, uh, for 108 miles of the Western Canyon, pretty much to the to the end near Grand Wash Cliffs, not quite, but um, they uh, have worked out uh, business arrangements with these helicopter touring companies to bring massive numbers of tourists from Las Vegas. And, and the vast majority of these tourists, I, I went into the headquarters of one of these helicopter companies one time, and I went through the register, um, counting up the number of people that signed in that morning and how many people were from the United States and how many for, were from foreign destinations. And about 93.5% of the people were from foreign destinations, every, everywhere you can imagine. So these uh, people come into Las Vegas, um, they jump on a helicopter, they fly through the Grand Canyon airspace, uh, creating a, an enormous amount of noise, and they yeah, land. It's really, it's really loud. It's incredibly loud. And they land, uh, you know, on the left bank of the Colorado River on the Wallapai Indian Reservation and get out and mill about. And, and it, you know, there are 300, sometimes as many as 400 flights a day. And, and there's nothing more destructive to wilderness. And, and Grand Canyon is proposed wilderness. And the Park Service has to manage it as if it's wilderness until Congress acts. And uh, there's nothing more damaging the wilderness uh, 
than just constant helicopter noise, you know, two, three hundred feet over your head. It's um, it's unbelievable how how loud it is. And in that part of the canyon, you don't see the animals anymore. You know, the bighorn sheep aren't near the the river. Um, they're much, much further away on the park side, trying to get away from the environment. You, you know, it's just, it's changed a lot of stuff. So, you know, this is an example of, you know, one of America's crown jewels just getting uh, absolutely crushed and destroyed through uh, ecotourism. Um, there, other threats uh, are extraction related. You, you know, one of the main minerals that, you know, people came to the Grand Canyon, the prospectors in the late, 1800s, early 1900s, and they're you know they're looking for gold and silver and really valuable stuff. Well, they all struck out. There's very little of that in the Grand Canyon. Uh, what they did find was some copper, and uh, the copper tends to be concentrated in these formations called uh, brasia pipes, uh, which are you know kind of formations where over a, uh, long periods of geologic time, water is percolated through down to the limestone layer, causing the limestone layer to uh, collapse. And these columns end up sifting and filtering water and allowing a concentration of, of minerals like copper. Well, in the 50s, they learned that another one of the minerals that's concentrated there is uranium. And so there's a long history of uranium mining around the Grand Canyon in the Grand Canyon watershed. And, and that has the potential to do you know catastrophic damage to the ecosystem because uranium ore when it's in the ground and there's no oxygen uh, is pretty inert um, and even uranium ore that you find on the ground if you picked it up you know the, the radiation coming off uh, uranium that you would mine in the canyon isn't really dangerous to hold for periods of time but once the uranium ore is exposed to air um, it, it, it then takes on new forms and becomes uh, soluble in water. Mm. And once uranium is soluble in water, if, if you drink any of that water, uh, all of a sudden you're, you're exposing the, you know, the internals of your body to long-term radiation. And, and one of the complicated parts of this chemical reaction is that you know, uranium will decay into polonium, which then decays into radon gas. And, and those are really uh, dangerous substances to have ingested. I mean, Marie Curie, who discovered polonium, died from polonium. So anyway, the, the, the uranium extraction in the Grand Canyon watershed is a catastrophic, enormously dangerous endeavor that really, really should be halted, in my opinion. So There's lots a, of places to get uranium. We don't. It's not the only place we have. So, as a photographer, how do you balance your responsibility for and desire to capture the beauty of this amazing place, while recognizing that that may attract more people to go there and want to experience that and drive up more people wanting to take to the helicopter rides? Like, how do yeah. you how do you reconcile that and like how do you shift your roles and responsibilities as a photographer yeah you know that's that's not an easy thing to do i i i think the the thought process has always been that if you can bring these beautiful stunning images to the american public of one of america's crown jewels 
um, the public appreciates the place, uh, is aware of the place, um, and becomes more aware of the threats, and they become more protective of the threats. So if they've seen beautiful images of the canyon, and then you tell them that, oh, by the way, there's going to be a uranium mine over there you know, next month, uh, um, you hope that the American public uh, uh, has developed enough of a connection to the place and the importance of the place to object to those things. I don't know if it always works out that way, um, right. <laughs> but you, you know, I mean, one of the one of the you know uh, byproducts of, of of that whole idea uh, that's destructive is this kind of industrial tourism that you, you see, right? You you know, if it happens to be an Instagram photo, you, maybe you inspire somebody to speak up, write a letter to a congressman or a senator objecting to uranium extraction. You know, at the same time you know, hundreds of other people want to go see that place. They saw it on Instagram and then we start stopping it to death. It's a, it's a hard balance. There's not, uh, you know, any, anybody that will sit there and tell you that, you know, as a photographer, you show people great pictures and they're going to protect the place, you know, is, is not being, you know, realistic about striking the right balance. It's, it's, it's hard. Um, I think the thing Grand Canyon's got going for it, is it is so well known and if you tell americans that you know it's being destroyed in some way even if you've never been there it kind of gives you this visceral reaction what you know i haven't seen it yet how can we be destroying it but it, it it's a hard thing to balance i mean photographers can do good in highlighting the beauty of these places and the importance of saving them and they can do bad by you know just bringing throngs of people that don't have the, the wilderness ethic that the photographer may have had in the first place. Um, most of the photographs that I take, that I like to take, are the ones that are deep in the backcountry. And the barrier to entry for people to get there is just so high that, right. you know. They're the, not going to replicate that. <laughs> not not going to replicate that. Not, not without the help of, you know, some in, industrial grade guiding and stuff like that. But, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It really is. Yeah, I, I struggle with it all the time. It's like, what do you just not share your photos anymore? You know what I mean? Like that doesn't yeah. seem like a reasonable uh, alternative. So it's tough. I'm I'm glad you you're wrestling with it. I think a lot of us are right now, and it's. Yeah. I think the the main thing is to just try to continue to, you know, inspire people and share that message with them when they get inspired by your work. I think that's exactly right. I yeah. I think. We, we certainly all have a responsibility at, at a bare minimum to do that today. Yeah. So, you know, how do you keep images of the canyon unique and fresh after visiting it so, so many times? You, you know, um, one thing I've learned, and, and you, you know, I've, I've been shooting professionally for, you know, six or seven years now. Uh, so I've been, you know, there, there are people that have been shooting way, way longer than me. I, I, I came to the canyon as a hiker and an explorer, and then I eventually was inspired to pick up a camera. You know, there are photographers that came to the canyon as photographers, and they've been, you know, working on getting better at shooting the canyon for decades and decades. And they're enormously talented. Uh, some of them are enormously talented. In, in my case, I just don't find that to be a problem. I... I mean, there are trips and adventures I'll do that are repeats of things I've done in the past. And there are trips I'll do where there's something new that 
uh, you know, a place I haven't been to before or a new slot canyon we're exploring or, or something else that's unique and fresh. And, and I almost don't worry about that at all because what the Grand Canyon does so well is it delivers light. And mm -hmm. sometimes the light is just magical. Usually it's after you get your, you know, brains beat in by, you know, hail and rain and, you know, epic, <laughs> right. you know, dodging lightning bolts. Lightning is one of my favorite things to shoot, but it's also absolutely terrifying at times. Absolutely. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, it just delivers this idyllic light and, you know, mist on these cliffs and God rays, you know, blowing through and this color palette that uh, you couldn't describe if you, if you wanted to. And so in, in, in my case, I find that I get unique stuff on every trip by just letting the canyon do what it does and being able to react to the light that I see. And I'll take different images based on what's happening with the light. And, and, and I've even tailored the, the lens, lenses that I'll take into the canyon based on, you know, having more reach for tight shots or, or wildlife and, you know, being able to get, you know, the, the wide shots that I want or the night shots that I want. And, and, and the one thing I, I, I guess that I have learned over a long period of time is, is I'm able to be much more calculating on the kinds of light and experiences and composition opportunities I might see on a particular route. I often I've done the route before or something close to the route. I know something about the water environment. Some terraces in the Grand Canyon, for example, collect enormous pools of water after weather events. And all of a sudden you're in this reflection paradise. And it happens to be one of my favorite things to shoot is just, you know, water, pools, uh, a reflection of the Milky Way or off the cliffs at sunset or sunrise or, you know. So I, I have some expectation on the route of opportunities to shoot, but I really never know um, what, I, what I'm going to get. And, I love and, that. Yeah, and it's just... It, it, it's just part of the adventure. It's just a terrifically inspiring place to be when all of a sudden the light does things you don't expect. I, I was on an adventure a few years ago with some friends in the winter, and we had managed to get off the rim with some snow and ice and, and uh, you know, being a little careful with some technical gear. And we got down to the, the, the terrace that we wanted to be on about 1,800 feet below the rim, and then a massive snowstorm came in. And of course, we didn't have shelters or anything. We're going light, and we tucked in under an overhang and and saw this amazing, you know, snow experience. And the next morning, there's a full-on inversion going on with the clouds sinking into the canyons below our level, but 2,000 yes. feet above us, we could see the rim clear as day. And this inversion is breathing. It these clouds are are like going in and and out like the canyon is breathing below us and i'm shooting <laughs> these you know i'm i'm practically you, you know melting the shutter in my camera just watching this and then i shot a few time lapses and then it's like well i only got one body you know what am i going to shoot a time lapse or do i want to shoot stills over there you know right there are these magical moments where all of a sudden you realize that you're you're seeing something truly stunning and amazing and unusual that very few people ever get to see. Right. And you're fortunate enough to be there to try to capture it.
and and how do you capture it right are you capturing it i shoot a lot of time lapses i i have a million photos of the grand canyon and uh, I probably 60% are tied up in hundreds and hundreds of time lapses that I've shot over time. And sometimes the best way to capture a scene is, is, is through a time lapse where it's moving. You know, sometimes it's video. Sometimes it's just beautiful stills capturing light in the right places with a longer lens. You know, it, it's a gift to be in that place and have to make those hard decisions. You, you know, you've been handed this amazing right. palette and it's like <laughs> your job is to you know make your wife believe that you saw something like that you got to bring it home that my my friend pete mcbride he pete and i have been in some situations like that and he, he would look at me and he said like it, you know if i went back to headquarters and uh made any excuses about this they would just look at me and say, your only job is to get the shot. You know, <laughs> shut up. I don't want to hear any excuses or anything. Your, we sent you, your only job was to go out there and get the shot. You better not come back empty-handed. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, sometimes, you, sometimes you feel like that, but it's, it's really a gift to, to be in the middle of it. Well, if someone else was uh, interested in getting immersed in this type of adventure in the Grand Canyon, uh, what are some ways that they can get started? Well, I, I think Grand Canyon is a, 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 a as a subject is as big as the canyon itself and and I think the the air it, it it can be a very dangerous place there are you know 15 fatalities a year um there was just a you know backpacker fatality uh last week that was a heat related illness that turned into a fatality it, it's a really dangerous place and and it it, it really requires someone to uh, get to know the place carefully, incrementally uh, learn about the place and experience the place. And I would recommend people do what, you know, what I did. I mean, initially go hike some of the trails. Maybe you can't hike from rim to river in a day, which the park service tends to really frown on because there are 400 rescues a year. And a lot of them are people that just get it over their head. They forget that that down is easy and up is not, you know, yeah. down is optional up is not. Right. And I, uh, I remember when I, so when I rafted it, I only did half of it. And so, you know, we came out, um, at, you know, the, whatever that trail is. Probably and, Bright Angel Trail. Yeah. yeah, Bright Angel. And yeah. there were people down at the bottom that like had like a small water bottle and tennis shoes and like no food. And you're just like, are you, and they have like small kids with them and you're just like, right. are you, are you going to be okay? Cause yeah. like you have to go all the way back up there and it's like 4,000 feet of elevation gain. <laughs> yeah. I, I know a lot of the rangers of the park and you know, they're the poor folks that, you know, are involved in rescuing those people all the time, every day, yeah. especially this time of year. Heat, heat is a real killer. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think the best thing for people to do that, that, really get inspired by the, the best thing to do is to find out if you really get inspired by the grand canyon go do a short hike off the rim um and then come back out because it's not easy and and if you if you get past the pain and suffering that you know will be occurring in your first few experiences doing that um then you know go further um hike all the trails if, if you find yourself really uh you know, yearning to go see more of the canyon, take a river trip, 
like 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 you did. It's a it's an incredible yeah. experience. The commercial guides at the Grand Canyon are the the best there are in the world. They're incredibly good at taking clients from all walks of American life and in, international life for you know anybody uh, uh, through yeah. the canyon. Go take a river trip if you're still inspired. Uh, and, and you want to see slot canyons, for example, go pick up Todd Martin's Grand Canyoneering and, and start up in Marble Canyon. There's some day hike canyons up there where you can start on the rim and rappel through a relatively easy technical canyon and climb back to the rim. You know, start start small um, and uh, incrementally, and you'll find that, you know, every time you go out and do something a little harder, your sense of accomplishment grows, your sense of adventure grows your sense of wonder at just how vast this place is uh, yeah grows yeah it's funny i, I was I, was ta- I ran into i climbed a mountain a couple of days ago and i ran into a guy up there and he was like yeah i'm gonna go do this mountain over here and i've done that mountain before and it's like class five like really difficult climbing and i was he's like yeah, yeah i'm gonna he's like how hard is that and i'm like um have you ever done a class three climb and you know, which is like a little bit of handover <laughs> feet. And he's like, he's no, like what's that? that? Yeah. And I'm like, you should probably start there first and maybe see if you can handle that before you graduate to this other stuff, because it's the difference yeah. is pretty, it's pretty wild. Yeah, it, it is. And a lot of people, I mean, even those folks that understand what class three, four and five you know, uh, uh, scrambling and climbing really is, um, don't appreciate the fact that when you're off trail in the Grand Canyon, it's pretty common to find yourself in, you know, some 5-5 five, five terrain that you, I mean, you free solo with a pack on because you can't protect it. And, right. you know, these, are, these aren't long pitches, but, you know, there's a 20-foot cliff band that actually goes if you can, you know, if you can climb, five five with a pack on it's not hard at all the consequences of messing up are really bad right but that is just part of getting around that complex three-dimensional terrain and yeah, yeah it, it, you, and you just have to work your way up to that over time you just right. don't uh, I, I mean I, i've seen so many people i i rarely go into the canyon and in remote places with people i don't know because i've learned over time that sometimes you're you know you're basically a rescue person you know hauling a friend out who actually didn't really understand what 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 this was all about in the first place and you know that's not fun for them it's not fun for you or right have you ever been canyoneering before oh i i repelled at the climbing gym once (laughs) Uh uh-huh exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) yep yeah Yeah. how does this rope go in here again (laughs) right i (laughs) mean that's fair i mean i'm not I'm not a rope expert myself, but like I make sure that people I'm with know that before we even leave. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that I think that's really important. I a place like Grand Canyon that's so big and complex is all about incrementalism. It's all about yeah. you know just slightly pushing the envelope from your prior trip and learning more about it and and getting better at you know travel in that kind of terrain and you know at some point in time you you realize that you're seeing some really, really special places that a lot of people don't get to see. I, I, I've told people this often, but you know, the Grand Canyon is just bigger in a lifetime. I, I've probably spent more time below the rim than just about anybody in the canyon these days. Uh, I spent about 1,200 days below the rim. 
and uh, you know, in my life, and and uh, I'll die before I see it all. Yeah. I mean, it's just you just can't. People can't comprehend how big it is, but I, I just tell them it's bigger than a lifetime. It's bigger than my lifetime, your lifetime, or anybody else's. You can start young and start, you know, tromping around the place and learning about it and become an expert and moving in the in the you know in the terrain and seeing these amazing places. And you know, at some point in your life when you can't do it anymore, you'll realize you haven't seen it all. Yeah. Well, Rich, this has been awesome. Uh, who would you recommend our listeners uh, learn more about and um, take a look at their work? Well, you know, I think there are two people that have, you know, really inspired me on my journey in photography in, in, in the Grand Canyon. My friend Dan Ransom, who I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Dan is is an absolute technical wizard at running a camera in a hard environment and, uh, you know, figuring out how to just get amazing photographs. Um, and, uh, and, and you can see his work at danransom.com. He's, he's really talented. And then my friend Pete McBride, I, you know, lots and lots of people know Pete or have met Pete or have, you know, seen him at a film festival or something. But, you know, the, the thing about Pete is, is, is that, um, Pete's an example of, of this amazing intuitiveness that comes from being behind a camera for uh, decades and, and shooting in a really high expectation environment that you find with National Geographic. Um, and and uh, what's fascinating about, uh, about Pete is just how quickly he sees a composition and he's shooting. And what you think he's shooting and how you think he's shooting and, you know, what the shutter speed f-stop, how far in he's zoomed, all that stuff you think that you know, you're probably wrong. You look <laughs> at the back of his camera and you ask him what he's doing and you realize, oh, you're shooting a tight shot. Look at that. You know, the, I mean, these little nuances, Pete's, Pete's incredibly good at these amazing nuances in nature that, you know, they're easy to look past. Uh, he sees it all. Uh, both those guys have been really inspirational to me and uh, taught me a lot about handling a camera. And, you know, the fact that every once in a while I, I get a good image in a rough environment, you know, largely due to things I've learned from them. We stand on the shoulder of giants. Yeah, that's that's true in just about anything. Hiking in the Grand Canyon, taking pictures, uh, just about anything in life. Yeah. Well, Rich, this has been great. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you to Rich for joining me on the podcast today. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can listen to our bonus episode on Patreon all about his 57-day traverse of the Grand Canyon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Patreon is the best way to support the podcast. A simple pledge of only $5 per month grants you access to bonus episodes, which we have like, I don't know, 190 of. At $10 a month, you gain access to episodes about a month early, and you can even save money by supporting at an annual level. Since this podcast operates on the value for value model, where I produce something that you value, and you tell me how much you value it with a monetary pledge, I depend on your support to keep it running. 
I consider any value greater than zero a fair number. Thank you to those of you who have already pledged to support the show, including Dan Rice and Jeff Trapp. Thank you to both of you for your generous support of the podcast. Well, we have some really exciting episodes coming up. First, we have John Norris, who's a great photographer who loves making images at Joshua Tree National Park. After that, we have Alistair Ben returning to the show to talk all about his approach to making expressive images and his new book. After that, we have Ilan Shaholm, who is an Israeli landscape photographer. And after that, we have German nature photographer, Radomir Jakubowski. It is a packed schedule. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.